Part 2. Reconstruction. Chapter 11. Reconstructing Church Government. The church increasingly has come under attack by the state. The church is a God-ordained government with leaders, courts, a law book, discipline, a mandate from heaven to take dominion, and a covenantal hierarchy. It is a government that will outlast the other God-ordained governments, family, and state. Obviously, there are dozens of reforms that need to be made in church government in order to reconstruct it to conform to biblical standards. Equally, obviously, each denominational group has its own special view of just how this reordered church should look. These views do not agree. Thus, the church on earth has been divided, unlike the unified church in the courts of heaven. But that unity of faith is more fundamental than the divided claims of men. And before Christ returns in power and glory, a degree of unity will be achieved to reflect what is in principle a united government. So far, Christians have failed in their attempt to bring unity to the church. Much of what we have been doing for almost 2,000 years has been wrong. So we should look to new approaches. The fundamental approach is to recognize the reality of the five-point covenant structure, and to work with it, and to work within it as much as we can. If we refuse to begin where God tells us to begin, then we can hardly expect success in history. Remember, God's two principles of government, decentralism and a bottom-up hierarchy. We will not be able to achieve our goals through a top-down imposition of power. That is Satan's way, not God's. Transcendence, Presence First, we begin with the truth that God alone is absolutely sovereign, not man. Thus, he alone is all-seeing, omniscient, all-powerful, omnipotent, and everywhere present with his creation, omnipresent. No creature, including Satan, possesses any of these attributes of God. They are incommunicable attributes. Thus, we can have faith that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. We do not need to impose power over others to achieve good. God does this through his direct control over history and his direct meeting with each person. He alone is truly transcendent, above everything, and distinct in being from his creation, and truly eminent, truly present next to each creature, yet not part of his creation. We must avoid deism, a total distant God, and pantheism, a God totally immersed in the creation and not different from it. The church, in many respects, has lost its vitality and manifests corruption, compromise, and retreat. Scripture tells us, For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God, 1 Peter 4.17. This means that true worship must be restored. Adam and Eve rebelled, choosing to serve the creature rather than the creator, Genesis 3.1-7, Romans 1.18-32. Jesus rebuked Satan and in the process taught the true purpose of life. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Matthew 4.10, compare Deuteronomy 6.13. Robert Rayburn writes, The worship of God is at once the true believer's most important activity, and at the same time it is one of the most tragically neglected activities in the average evangelical church today. In the preaching and teaching of the churches, in conferences, in seminars, individual Christians have been encouraged to have their own daily quiet time, for a period of personal devotion is an important part of every Christian life. They have been admonished to pray for their own needs and the needs of others. They have been taught to study the Bible for their own spiritual growth and for the use in guiding and instructing others. There remains, however, among sincere believers today, 
a woeful ignorance concerning the significance of true worship and the means of attaining the blessing of rich, rewarding corporate worship. The gospel must be faithfully preached to the world as mankind's only hope. Preaching the gospel should be so comprehensive as to affect every individual, group, institution, and nation. The curse of sin and death is removed as more and more people come under the preaching of the gospel. Romans 8, 18 through 25. We recite John 3:16, which tells of God's love for the world, but limit that love to parts of the world, meaning only individuals in the world. David Chilton writes, That the world should be saved. Here is one of the most often quoted passages of all the Bible, and so often we miss the point. Jesus Christ came to save the world, not just a sinner here and a sinner there. He wants us to disciple the nations, not just a few individuals. The Lord Jesus will not be satisfied in the success of his mission until the whole earth is singing his praise. On the basis of God's infallible promises, the church must pray and work for the expansion of the kingdom, with the expectation that God will fill his church with a great multitude which no one can count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Revelation 7.9 Authority Hierarchy Second, the church is established by God, not by man, either through the state or the family. This denies both statism and familialism both of which are popular heresies in today's humanist world. The church exists first and foremost to worship God. Secondarily, it exists to meet the spiritual needs of men. Third, it exists to perform works of charity, first with those in the household of faith, and second to those outside. Today's all-embracing state seeks to eradicate any institution that competes with its perceived areas of authority and jurisdiction. One way this is done is by redefining the church. The church is no longer viewed as a religious institution, a government under God, but as a charitable institution, similar to the United Way. As a charitable institution, the church becomes the creature of the state, subject to its laws regarding taxation and public policy. The state is blind to religious considerations. The extension of the church as a charitable institution is found in the state-created doctrine of public policy. The modern state wants to be bound to no law except its own created law. Public policy is synonymous with status law. R.J. Rushdoony writes, Whatever is contrary to public policy is thereby not entitled to tax exemption, nor to a free exercise of its faith, i.e., to any legal existence. Thus, if abortion and homosexuality are held to be public policy, no group has any right to tax exemption or to maintain its legal freedom to pursue and uphold its discrimination, but must assent to these policies. No better blueprint for totalitarianism has ever been devised than this public policy doctrine. With such doctrine, the state assumes the power to define the church and to establish the church's policies. The church no longer answers to Christ, only to the state. One way for a church to get out of this trap is to abandon incorporation. If the church ever received tax-exempt status as an Internal Revenue Code 501c3 organization, it should reconstitute itself and become a church, not a charitable trust or foundation. The grant of tax exemption to churches is automatic, though the Internal Revenue Service agent may not admit this. The church may not be able to receive educational rate mailing privileges, but so what? The church must continue to speak and act. The pulpits must resound with the clear preaching of the Bible. 
Preachers should not fear the unauthorized authority of the state and its real power, nor should the church forsake the preaching of the gospel, fearing the removal of tax exemption and the possible arrest of its pastor. The apostles were imprisoned, and some murdered, because they refused to be silenced. Acts 4, 1-31, 12. Those tyrants are dead, but the church of Jesus Christ remains. Ethics, Law, Dominion Third, the church must be a boot camp for the saints in the war with humanism. The whole counsel of God, Acts 20:27, must be marshaled against the whole counsel of humanism. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the works of service to the building up of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, 11, 12. Archie Jones states, As a consequence of Christians' abandonment of the study, preaching, hearing, and doing of the whole counsel of God, we have neglected the scope of the spiritual warfare between the army of Christ and that of Satan, neglected the subtlety of the serpent, the adversary, and retreated from our created, reborn, and commanded purpose of dominion for Christ under his lordship. Consequently, Christians today find themselves unmistakably embattled. Due to our neglect of God's word, however, rather than being on the offensive and the attack, American Christians find themselves under attack by humanists in high places. Elders required to meet certain moral qualifications before be considered for office must also be able to teach 1 Timothy 3.2. Basic doctrine certainly should be taught, from theology proper, the doctrine of God, to eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. The church should take care to include doctrines pertaining to inflation, abortion, foreign affairs, education, welfare, and the poor, philosophy, and economics. Finance represents an area of neglect within much of the church. Paul tells us to... Oh, no man anything, Romans 13, 8. Too many of us spiritualize this to mean, Oh, no man a spiritual debt. That is nonsense. In the previous section, Paul sets forth Christian requirements for payment of taxes to the civil magistrate. In like manner, financial debts of money or some commodity should be avoided, or at least limited. Pastors must equip the saints for the work of service in terms of God's word as it covers every area of life. I would single out economics and finance as fears where much of the church has manifested studied indifference. Many of our seminaries and churches have done very little to prepare leaders for this aspect of their ministry. As a result, the people in the pews have suffered. Instead of approaching these subjects in terms of God's word, our people have been forced to rely on the secular financial advisors and economists for understanding. In addition, I believe that many working men and women grappling with financial problems drop out of church life because they do not get answers or directions in this area. Judgment Sanctions Fourth, the church must restore its status as a court. One of the true marks of a church is the discipline of its members. Matthew 16, 18, 19, 18, 15 through 20, 1 Corinthians 5. The church leadership should not allow sin to go unchecked. An unrepentant member should be excommunicated from fellowship and from receiving the sacraments. Churches should respect the government discipline of another church. The purpose of discipline is to restore our brother, Matthew 18:15. Discipline is not an end in itself. The church has developed an inferiority complex in neglecting its role as legitimate court of law. Paul instructs us that conflicts between church members should be handled within the jurisdiction of the church. With the collapse of civil court justice, the church has a tremendous opportunity to witness to the world that Jesus is indeed the Lord, compared to Deuteronomy 4, 1-8. through 8. 
The church must stand against statist encroachment. One way the state controls the church is by restricting its activities. The church comes under attack in every nation that believes in the ultimate state. The church preaches another king, another kingdom, and another way of salvation. The Christian owes allegiance to Jesus Christ and subordinately to Caesar or the modern state. Only in Christ do earthly rulers have legitimacy. This frightens and subverts the messianic state. The apostles preached that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. This early creedal statement countered the Roman belief that the Caesars were personifications of the gods. Jesus is the only truly independent king. All other kings derived authority and power from him. Christians were accused of acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus, Acts 17.7. The modern messianic, ultimate state, exhibits many of the first century Rome's characteristics, wherein all religions were tolerated so long as they acknowledged the ultimacy of the state. Leftism does not like religion for a variety of causes. Its ideologies, its omnipotent, all-permeating state wants undivided allegiance, with religion at least one other allegiance to God, if not also allegiance to a church, is interposed. In dealing with organized religion, leftism knows only of two widely divergent procedures. One is a form of separation of church and state which eliminates religion from the marketplace and tries to atrophy it by not permitting it to exist anywhere outside the sacred precincts. The other is the transformation of the church into a fully state-controlled establishment. Under these circumstances, the church is asphyxiated, not starved to death. The Nazis and the Soviets used the former method. Czechoslovakia still employs the latter. Nazi Germany remade the church in its own image. Churches could exist so long as National Socialism was preached from the pulpits. The National Right Church of Germany categorically claims the exclusive right and the exclusive power to control churches within the borders of the Reich. It declares these to be national churches of the German Reich. Inheritance, Legitimacy, Continuity Fifth, the church must recognize that it is the true heir of God. It is the source of historical continuity. The wealth of sinners is stored up for the just, Proverbs 13.22. The mercy of God extends to thousands of generations to those who are faithful to him, Exodus 26. This process of inheritance goes on generation after generation because the church of Jesus Christ is the true heir of God. There is an unbroken continuity. In every generation the gospel is preached, the sacraments are given, and the church develops its authority. The church has lost much influence in society because it turned its calling over to the state, which has tried to become a substitute parent. The church can help the poor through tithes, gleanings, lending, job training, and financial instruction. Church members should be taught that the Bible knows nothing of a welfare state where taxes are levied against the more prosperous to care for the less prosperous. They should be taught about the limited duties of the state, as well as the duties of the church, both as an ecclesiastical organization and as the body of believers in Christ, and be taught to act in accordance. But Christians do not appear to possess much influence of power. What can we do? Everything. We must do everything. We must set the pattern for righteous living and lawful inheritance, the building up of spiritual and earthly capital over long periods of time. Little by little we build, for we leave an inheritance behind. We lay up treasures in heaven, but these are also reflected on earth, for by our fruits men will know us. 
Thus, we can begin with very little, for we know that faithful living over time leads to growth and growth, if continued, eventually multiplies and fills the earth. It is only Christians who can legitimately have faith in this compound growth process. Where to begin? To get from here to there is not easy, but it is possible. Here are only a few practical steps that churches can take as expression of their covenantal faithfulness to God. Churches must keep working and trusting God for the blessings. Transcendence, Presence Our creedal statements neglect vital social issues. The great creedal formulations of the past were developed in the heart of religious and political conflict. For example, the Council of Chalcedon, A.D. 451, established that the state was not divine. The Roman emperors had established themselves as the saviors of the world, the only link between heaven and earth. R.J. Rustjuni writes about the importance of Chalcedon. The Council of Chalcedon met in 451 to deal with the issue as it came to focus at the critical point in Christology. If the two natures of Christ were confused, it meant that the door was open to the divinizing of human nature. If the human nature of Christ were reduced or denied, his role as man's incarnate Savior was reduced or denied, and man's Savior again became the state. If Christ's deity were reduced, then his saving power was nullified. If his humanity and deity were not in true union, the incarnation was not then real, and the distance between God and man remained as great as ever. The drafting of creeds was a serious business. The safety of the church depended on their clarity and comprehensiveness. The state knew where the church stood on any issue because the creeds directed their attention to the particulars of the faith. The word creed comes from the Latin credo and simply means I believe. If a contemporary creed does not include a particular item, then one can assume that this item is either of little or no importance to the life of the church. If a group of churchmen really believed in something, it would find itself in the church's creed. This is one of the reasons the Amish have been able, up until recently, to practice their faith without the long arm of government interference. On the new Social Security bailout scheme, the Amish are exempt. Their creedal formulations and their constant practice substantiates their claims of seeking no government aid. Prior to the new tax ruling, nearly 80% of all churches had voluntarily chosen to pay into Social Security system. This is an indication that the whole purpose of God is not preached from the pulpits. These church employees could have gotten a raise. Employees must remember that the employer does not pay an equal share of Social Security. This is money that would have gone to the employee in the form of wages. By putting the money we now pay into private pensions and savings programs, the payoff would be substantially higher than it could ever be under Social Security. Moreover, this investment capital could be loaned out for greater economic expansion. I've been told that this is not a creed writing age. No age is a creed writing age until the need for a creed arises and someone decides to write a creed. The last great creedal formulation was in 1647 when the Westminster Confession of Faith was written. That was over 300 years ago. A lot has happened since. We didn't have status schools, the NEA, Social Security, and the IRS. A.A. A. Hodge writes about the need for creeds as a preservative from external and internal hostilities. The church is forced, therefore, on the great principle of self-preservation to form such accurate definitions of every particular doctrine misrepresentative 
and shall include the whole truth and exclude all error, and to make such comprehensive expositions of the system of revealed truth as a whole, that no one part shall be either unduly diminished or exaggerated, but the true proportion of the whole be preserved. The Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, says nothing about Christian education or the tax question. When the state imposes its laws upon the church, the church must scramble to develop what it believes. I've been in a number of informal meetings with Christians over the tax and school questions. This is creedal formulation. It is the beginning of what we desperately need today. I see little hope of various denominations getting together under one confession of faith. While this would be nice, it's just not likely. But various denominations and independents who should work with some type of denominational affiliation for survival's sake could hammer out appendixes to their own confessions. They could then be added without cutting out their denominational distinctives. If the church does not begin to develop new creedal formulations, at least additions to present creeds, then we can expect continued statist encroachment. Our creeds are a witness to the world, including the state. Reverend Kenneth L. Gentry writes, Creeds witness to the truth to those outside the bounds of the covenant community by clearly outlining and explaining the fundamental assertions of Christianity, seriously warning against misbelief, vigorously defending the truth from corruptions, witnessing to the unity and order of the Christian system, demonstrating the continuity and immutability of the historic Christian faith, showing the rational, objective content of Christian truth, as against misrepresentations, such as a belief that Christian faith is a mystic blind leap, and so on. If the church fails to draft the necessary creeds and confessions, then we can expect the state to do it for us. The question is not whether we should develop new creeds and updated confessions, but who will develop the new creeds and updated confessions. Creedalism is inescapable. The future of the church depends on them. Authority hierarchy. There must be a recovery of the idea of the covenant. This book is one step in this recovery. People must know that they report to church officers. There can be no followers without leaders, and no leaders without followers. Men must learn to obey before they can successfully lead. This is why Paul establishes the criterion for the church office, elders, and deacons, that the candidate must rule his family well, 1 Timothy 3. If he has not learned to do this, he has not proven his capacity for leadership. Does this mean that unmarried and never married men should not ordinarily be ordained? If we are to take seriously the words of the apostle, this is what it means. But this also ensures that creative, disciplined men will become leaders. They will understand the needs and problems of congregation members. They will be far less bureaucratic in their rule and far more familial. The Roman Catholic Church a thousand years ago made celibacy the basis of ordination, precisely because the leaders recognized that a man who worries about wife and family cannot be a bureaucrat whose obedience can be commanded. Protestants recognized clearly that this mandated celibacy favored a top-down hierarchical church that is unbiblical. What is needed is a bottom-up appeals court system with judges who understand the lives of those under them. This means family men. To the extent that unmarried men, especially young unmarried men, are placed over congregations, to that extent one of the major insights of Protestantism is lost. If the seminary degree continues to be the major criterion for access to the pulpit, rather than family leadership, hospitality, and godly behavior, then the church will continue to flounder.
On this point, the reform tradition of an educated ministry became the bureaucratic emphasis on academic training and academic degrees. Thus, the church has suffered from this improper emphasis for over nine centuries. Ethics, Law, Dominion A continuing theme in this book is the idea that people must learn to govern themselves before they govern others. But self-government must be in terms of law. What law? Whose law? Until Christians get this clear in their own minds, they will not be able to exercise dominion in society. The revival of biblical law in our day is a crucial aspect of the revival of dominion theology. R.J. Rushdoony's book, The Institutes of Biblical Law, Craig Press, 1973, was the most important document in the revival of dominion theology. It sets forth the requirements of the Ten Commandments in many areas of society. One of the crying needs today is good counsel. The Bible tells us that as Christians, we are competent to counsel and able to admonish one another, Romans 15:14. But counsel must always be in terms of law and morality. It can never be neutral. There is no neutrality in life. Counsel must be in terms of God's law. Instead of sending mentally disturbed and desperate church members to godless, humanistic psychologists and psychiatrists, a number of people in the church ought to become equipped to counsel. This will mean studying the works of J.E. Adams. Here's a list of just some of his books. Competent to Counsel The Christian Counselor's Manual Matters of Concern to Christian Counselors Insight and Creativity in Christian Counseling More Than Redemption The Christian Counselor's New Testament Warning, your pastor may need counseling insurance. There are civil lawsuits against pastors these days for bad counseling. It is not worth getting licensed, but an insurance policy might be a wise idea. Judgment Sanctions The church should be an established court to handle disputes between brothers, 1 Corinthians 6, 1-11. Actual studies conducted by the Christian Consolation Service of New Mexico have shown that in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with a population of approximately 500,000 people, there were more than 8,000 lawsuits annually with church members on both sides. That amounts to 16,000 Christians suing each other annually and spending an average of 1,500 each in legal fees and court costs. In short, a total of 24 million annually is being spent by Christians in Albuquerque for litigation prohibited by 1 Corinthians 6. In Atlanta, Georgia, to cite another example, Christians are spending roughly 96 million annually suing each other contrary to scripture. The individual is instructed, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge, and that the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison, Matthew 5:25. While the judge, appointed by the state, has authority to settle disputes, those who are involved in the dispute can reach a settlement before the case even reaches the ear of the civil court. Moreover, the innocent party is duty-bound to confront an erring brother. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Verses 23-24. In another place, Jesus instructs us to reprove our brother in private before we involve others in the dispute. Matthew 18-15. It is not insignificant that the scriptures suggest that his first step should be in private. 
Before others are brought into conflict, before witnesses or the church are included, the parties should seek a reconciliation on a personal and private basis. In such initial meetings, friends or advisors may, in fact, impede reconciliation. Others who wish to rush in quickly might note the counsel of Proverbs 26.17. He who meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Revised Standard Version. When disputes cannot be settled between two individuals or among family members, the church can, must, operate as a legitimate judicial authority. When individual and group confrontation fails to bring about a just decision, Jesus commands us to tell it to the church, Matthew 18:17. The church is a gifted body of believers, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, who have the word of God as the final voice of authority for all matters of faith and practice, 2 Timothy 3:16-17. If the church is not equipped to handle disputes, then what institution is? While Paul discouraged lawsuits between believers, he did establish the principle that the people of God are capable of handling disputes among the brethren. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? 1 Corinthians 6 1. Inheritance, legitimacy, continuity. Establish an educational center at your church. Most families cannot afford to build a substantial library. And most public libraries will not carry the books you'll want to read. Start a book fund to purchase hard-to-find books. A room should be set aside for study. Tapes, magazines, newsletters, and Bible courses can be made available. Your church could work with Christian schools in the area and set up teacher enrichment programs. Why send your teachers back to the state schools for indoctrination? Develop your own program and funnel any tuition money that would have gone to the colleges back through the church's study center. If your church doesn't have a Christian school and there isn't a good one in the area, help to get one started. When modern-day church schools are harassed by the state today, the state sees no such creedal prescription. There's nothing written that expresses the convictions of the denomination. It's interesting to note that the independent churches are most susceptible. Their no-creed-but-Christ rhetoric gets them into trouble. Moreover, their independency leaves them vulnerable. Do you think the state would fool around with the Roman Catholic Church, the United Methodist, or the Southern Baptist if they had taken a strong stand on the social security issue? Caring for the poor is not the duty of civil government. A basic poverty ministry ought to be started in your church. This will mean an effective poverty ministry and not a handout program for anyone who asks. The best-selling book on the subject is George Grant's Bringing in the Sheaves, published by American Vision, P.O. Box, 720515 Atlanta, Georgia 30328. Summary Change the world should be the rallying cry of every Christian. The early church was known for its world changing gospel. When the gospel was preached, these first century Christians were rightly accused of turning the world upside down, Acts 17.6. Their preaching affected all of life, Acts 20.27. Today's church is is, again, believing the world can be changed. Christians are no longer content to see the world transformed into a nightmare by those who deny Jesus Christ and his word. The belief that the world can be changed has been adopted and perverted by communism, militant Islam, and secular humanism. Karl Marx, for example, concluded his communist manifesto with the words, you have a world to win. This vision fired the imagination of millions of idealistic but misguided young communists. Communists around the world understood that it was not enough to interpret the world. 
They work to change it. Of course, theirs is a world without Christ, a movement without any chance of success. See Psalm 2 and Proverbs 8.36. Christians must be obedient to the mandate God has given to extend his kingdom to every sphere of life, to every corner of the globe. Genesis 1.26-28, Matthew 28.18-20. Communism, militant Islam, and secular humanism have had their day. The world can be changed through the preaching of the gospel and the application of scripture to every area of life. The time is now. Christians around the world are beginning to realize that Jesus is indeed Lord of heaven and earth.